BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys, episode 201. Gowanus, Brooklyn's Troubled Waters. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a tale of an old waterway rich in history and urban legend. The Gowanus Creek... Well, actually, we'll be calling it a creek for only a small portion of the story. Today, that would be like calling Times Square a meadow. The Gowanus Canal is a narrow body of water in the western section of Brooklyn, seeping next to the modern neighborhoods of Red Hook, Carroll Gardens, and Park Slope. Or rather, that's how you might have described it 30 or 40 years ago, because Gowanus, or at least the blocks lining the canal, well, that's actually a neighborhood as well. In fact, it's one of the most hotly contested real estate areas in town, with developers lustfully eyeing Gowanus's former industrial architecture. In 2015, the New York real estate blog Curbed bestowed Gowanus its annual Curbed Cup, awarded to the best neighborhood in New York. Now, all of this despite the fact that the Gowanus has been renowned for almost a century and a half as one of America's great polluted waterways, infamously aromatic, bubbling with decades of toxins, its surface perpetually shiny with a chemical film. It remains one of the most intriguing places in New York, however. In fact, I'm in our Brooklyn studio right now, which is actually just a few blocks away from the Gowanus. Tom, if you couldn't tell, isn't here this week, but I'm not going to be alone on this show. For the first part, I'll walk you through the salad days of old Gowanus and try to give you some idea of what it might have been like, from its bucolic glory to the drama which took place on its banks during the Revolutionary War. Before the grittier section of the show, I'm very grateful to be joined by Joseph Alexiou, the author of A New History on This Troubled Water. The book's called Gowanus, Brooklyn's Curious Canal. And we hope that you will find it quite curious indeed as we unspool its particular charms for you and sift through some of its more intriguing mysteries. So let's take a dive, shall we, through the history of the Gowanus. Today's Gowanus, obviously, is a very defined and unnatural-looking place, truncated from its original course as a creek and confined over the many, many decades into its present form as the Gowanus Canal. Its present length is about 1.8 miles. Now, if you happen to have a map open and don't know exactly where this is, or if you happen to be swimming past Red Hook, the Gowanus is located where the upper New York Bay enters into Brooklyn via the large Gowanus Bay. The original river, which was an estuary, rose and receded with the ocean tides and once took a quite windy course into the land, surrounded by saltwater marshes. Today, this waterway officially becomes the canal at the Hamilton Avenue Bridge, or basically when the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, commonly referred to here as the Gowanus Expressway, well, as it crosses over the water at this particular place. The canal, with a few detours along the way, of course, then terminates about 18 to 19 blocks inland at Butler Street. 
The neighborhood of Gowanus is not as easily defined traditionally, I guess, but essentially it's those many blocks of industrial architecture that are west of Park Slope and east of Red Hook. Now, that's a mite confusing, but it's just to underscore that we live in a world of micro-labeling neighborhoods here. But for many, many decades, you would have just called all of that, all of those neighborhoods, including the Gowanus, you would have called it South Brooklyn because it was just south to the geographic center of the original settlement of Brooklyn. In the 18th century, when Long Island was mostly wild and untamed, all the highlands near the river, the slopes of Park Slope, and the elevations as far down as today's Greenwood Cemetery, you may have called all of that Gowanus Heights, or the Heights of Gowan, which, you know, sounds like a place you might meet up with Frodo and the Gollum. The Heights of Gowan. Gowanus is internationally famous as a putrid body of water, a punchline even. And this reputation is certainly not new. To actually quote from a history book written 100 years ago, 1916, called Brooklyn and Gowanus in History, the Battle of Long Island by Charles Michael Higgins, quote, To the cheap wits and false critics who have long played with some of the offensive conditions of our old Gowanus, it may now come as a surprise to learn that Gowanus ever had any place in history except a malodorous one. The history of our little Gowanus Creek illustrates the truth that the Almighty often uses the small and weak things of this world to confound the great. And if you will read out history, you will find that this creek, which our cheap wits have caused us to look on with more or less derision or revulsion, is yet one of the most historic streams in the land, unquote. Now, this old ancient history that's being referred to in that quote is embedded in the very name itself. Gowanus is one of many names in the New York area that is popularly believed to hold an original Lenape Indian connection within it. At least in popular lore, Gowanus comes from a tribal sachem by the name of Gowane, although no one, of course, really knows for sure. The first Dutch settlements to these parts arrived in the late 1630s, initially to exploit the river's unique tidal properties. Gristmills became the first industrial use of the Gowanus. In 1664, one mill owner even got permission to build a canal to better power his enterprise, basically the Gowanus' first canal over 350 years ago. Pity that it was 1664, for that was the year New Amsterdam was taken from the Dutch by the British, who, of course, renamed the whole area New York. Here on Long Island, most of the Dutch farmers remained. The small Dutch village of Breukelen seemed unconcerned, although its name over time became Brooklyn and would, of course, through its growth, dictate the course of development for this entire region. Jumping forward to the 18th century, the Gowanus retained its marshy character, still as of yet unpolluted, and popular in particular with oyster farmers. Now, in our Park Slope podcast from last year, we talked about one impressive farmhouse built in 1699 by Nicholas Vecht, a stone structure built upon land sloping up from the eastern side of the Gowanus. This is often known as the Vecht Cordelieu House, and as today's Old Stone House which you can visit on 3rd Street and 4th Avenue. While it's surrounded today by the pleasant extension of Park Slope, back then it was considered to be on the banks of the marshy Gowanus and plays into the river's most historically important starring role. On August 22, 1776, thousands of British troops left the shores of Staten Island and alighted upon those in Gravesend Bay, about six to seven miles south of the Gowanus area. Strife with the colonists had led the British to engage in an all-out war with the agitators. Now, George Washington and his Continental Army had known that Long Island would be a position that they would have to defend to curtail their British foes. In particular, some of Washington's forts had ideal vantage of the Gowanus lowlands, including Fort Defiance in the area of today's Red Hook and Fort Box around the modern neighborhood of Borham Hill. Most of the farmers around the Gowanus who had enjoyed its relative peace had fled by the evening of August 26th when General Howe led his forces northwards from Gravesend. There was brilliant deception and an overwhelming number of troops. The British were able to successfully trap Washington's men by taking the Jamaica Pass, which is east of here in the village of Bedford. 
the Continental Army engaged with Howe's phalanx along the heights of Gowan in the vicinity of today's Greenwood Cemetery in a location within today's Park Slope called Battle Pass. In both cases, they were brutally overcome. The entirety of Washington's troops would certainly have been overtaken by Howe and his overwhelming force, if not for the events which took place at the old Vec farmhouse here at the banks of the Gowanus a little afternoon on August 27th. The British, having easily taken the farmhouse, could have with ease wiped away the fleeing American troops traipsing through the steaming, muddy waters of the Gowanus. The entire conflict may have ended then and there, if not for the intervention of Washington's general, William Alexander Lord Sterling, and the finest 400 men of the Maryland Brigade. The brigade distracted British troops stationed within the house long enough for much of the Continental Army to escape to the Gowanus and over to the area of Brooklyn Heights. Even still, though, all along the banks of the Gowanus lay a scene of terror and carnage. As one soldier later wrote, quote, It is impossible for me to describe the confusion and horror of the scene. The artillery flying with the chains over horses' backs, our men running in almost every direction, and run which way they would, they were almost sure to meet the British or a Hessian. And the enemy huzzahing when they took prisoners made it truly a day of dismay to the Americans. I escaped by getting behind the British that had engaged with Lord Sterling and entered a swamp or marsh through which a great many of our men were retreating. Some of them were mired and crying to their fellows for God's sake to help them out. But every man was intent on his own safety and no assistant was rendered." Most of the Maryland Brigade was either killed or taken prisoner. Lord Sterling would later be released and fought alongside Washington for most of the war. He later died in 1783, and today he's buried at Trinity Church Cemetery. Now, you may wonder why there isn't some elaborate memorial to this disastrous event along the Gowanus itself. Of course, we have the old stone house, thank goodness, which was later excavated and refurbished and serves as a fine memorial to these events, of course. But that didn't really come along until the early 20th century. But by that time, the Gowanus had become much, much transformed to accommodate the rise of financial fortunes for the swelling city of Brooklyn. By 1830, the former village of Brooklyn was rapidly expanding into a proper city, and one engine of this growth was the development of the shipping industry just to the east of the Gowanus in Red Hook. Now, you can check out my podcast from a few years ago on the history of Red Hook, but long story short, New York's port infrastructure by this time was woefully inadequate for the needs of the industry by the 1830s. So Brooklyn happily stepped in, turning the western Long Island waterfront into a new home for the industry. In Red Hook, Colonel Daniel Richards developed an enclosed shipping yard called the Atlantic Basin. By the early 1850s, the grain elevators and enclosed warehouses here would turn Red Hook into a vital center of industry in New York Harbor. Later on, Richards even drafted a plan for the city of Brooklyn to officially turn the Gowanus into a canal, although plans to, quote, industrialize this historically important creek would not be realized until a decade or two afterwards. Red Hook's prominence in shipping would be assured with the construction of a second man-made port, the Erie Basin, in 1864. The long hooked arm of the Erie Basin actually juts out into Gowanus Bay and is still very much a part of the landscape there. Most people today know it because, well, they've either jogged along it, it's very picturesque, or they've stopped in at the Ikea, which is right next to it. The Gowanus Creek's ultimate fate, however, was determined by a man who owned land on the eastern shore of the Gowanus and stretched up the slope into the area of the old Revolutionary War battleground. Edwin Litchfield, a railroad man and his son of a prominent New York State politician, saw the potential opportunity in all that farmland near the Gowanus, not as a place for industry necessarily, but a residential neighborhood for those who controlled and benefited from that industry. This was realized in the form of a grid plan similar to that which reconfigured Manhattan or the area of today's Brooklyn Heights. This was a new grid plan that would be placed upon this land. 
Upon these blocks would soon be built some of the most lavish homes in Brooklyn, new money elites eager to live near a new park that was being built at the very top of the hill, near the vicinity of old Mount Prospect. And of course, nearby that would be built Litchfield's own spectacular home called Grace Hill, or the Litchfield Villa, as we call it today. And thus, of course, begins the birth of the neighborhood of Park Slope and the birth of Prospect Park. Now, I don't want to ruin all the surprises from the two podcasts that Tom and I recorded on those respective subjects, but let's just say Litchfield doesn't quite get the final say in how the land develops, and his own home is soon subsumed within the borders of this brand new park. But his effects upon the old Gowanus Creek were immediately felt as street widening, land leveling, and the development of a sewer system all made possible by Litchfield's Brooklyn Improvement Company made the land finally suitable for businesses who might use the unusual waters of the Gowanus for transportation and deliveries and, well, as you'll see, for dumping toxic spew into. As the Gowanus lost its original wild, windy shape, Litchfield even dug in little detours or basins, which are still evident along the canal today, where private businesses could enjoy unfettered canal access. And so, it must be said that this spells the end of the Gowanus as a creek. Before we turn to the dark side, let me look back one final time to the once pure waters of the Gowanus in a particular account written by French Walloon travelers in 1679-1680. Now, in describing one particular local delicacy, the famed oysters of the Gowanus, they say, quote, After supper we eat some Maryland oysters, which the host had brought up with him. We found them good, but Gowanus oysters at New York are better. In my next segment, I will let you in on why you may never, ever eat a Gowanus oyster again. And helping me to tell that tale, of course, my special guest is a guy who has spent more time describing disgusting, polluted waters in the past six months than perhaps any other human being on planet Earth. That's author and historian Joseph Alexiou. So all that and more after the commercial break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Back to the show. And now we're back with the second half of the history of the Gowanus Creek slash canal slash neighborhood. And floating up the canal, joining me on a tugboat, the savior of the second half of this show, is author Joseph Alexiou, writer of a great biography, a great history of the Gowanus. I feel like it's a character almost. Gowanus Brooklyn's Curious Canal. Thank you. Thanks for joining me to discuss the dirtier part of the show here. I'm sorry. I took care of the all the Revolutionary War, Litchfield grid plan stuff, because I feel like this is the stuff that really people kind of are more curious about, to use the word from your book. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very happy to oblige. And, you know, there's, there's so much history within the Gowanus that anyone who wants to narrate some of it, I welcome them. <laughs> Thank you for joining me in this crazy cause. <laughs> but it's, I do have to ask... And 
I'm sure it's everyone's first question when they approach you as the author of this, like what your particular relationship to the Gowanus is. Well, to start, I mean, I did live in the neighborhood Gowanus for uh, about five years. Uh, it's one of the first places I moved in about 2006. And uh, I didn't know that the canal was there. And uh, I, you know, upon discovering it, I was like, what is that? What the hell is mm-hmm. this? Um, it was really a kind of uh, an accidental thing. I, I liked Carroll Gardens and I knew about Park Slope, but this is where the cheaper apartments were in 2006. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that was sort of my, my first encounter with the Gowanus and my relationship with the neighborhood is that I consider it where you know I started my twenties in a way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, learning about New York and learning to to live there. Just to, I mean, I can also sort of say that I, I as a journalist, you, you know, a few years after it got started, I became very aware of the pollution and the sort of problems that were happening around it. And I saw a lot of locals complaining about certain aspects of, let's say, development around the canal. And I became really interested in the controversial side of it. It always seemed to bring up some kind of controversy. Well, isn't it odd that? two things that you said there that seem to not go together but mm-hmm. actually this sort of describes the Gowanus to me A is you can actually walk around the neighborhood and just not even a see that it's there because so much of the industrial infrastructure around it has been built to sort of cover it up. And unless you're crossing one of the five bridges, you kind of don't really walk across it, right? Right. No, you don't really see it at all. The landscape, you know, is dotted with all of these buildings, like as you say, that sort of make it this surprise when you do Mm -hmm. come across it. It almost unfolds in a way that's, you know, really, you wonder, is this the middle of New York City? Where Mm -hmm. is this? And and Mm -hmm. I think that is part of its charm is that it really is this idiosyncratic blotch on the land that (laughs) makes you wonder, you know, wait a second, where did this come from? And so then that's the other sort of element of this. It's like somewhat hidden, but incredibly polluted for decades and decades. And we'll get to that point here. But let me begin by sort of recapping what I just talked about, Mm -hmm. which is the idea that the Gowanus by the 1860s is separating two very distinct and important areas of Brooklyn. On the west side of the Gowanus is, of course, Red Hook and all the shipping industries that are developing there and is really one of the hearts of Brooklyn and pulling in all this money and helping Brooklyn become one of the biggest cities in America at the time. Then, of course, on the other side is the area where you had, of course, many of them living or would eventually live by the 1880s, 90s, which is the neighborhood of Park Slope. Right. So then what we have here in the middle is Gowanus, which up until the 1850s, 60s, right, was still pretty much a creek river, right? That was, you know, people were independently doing things and building walls and cleaning it up for their own private businesses, right? But it was by the 1860s and 70s is when it was properly canaled, right? That's right. It, well, the canaling process, if that is a verb, but I think it is, <laughs> took a long time. And it, you know, it took about 20 years for it to sort of solidify into the shape we know of it being in today. And there really wasn't true industry around there until the 1860s. And, and that sort of developed onwards from there. For it to lose its character as as a, a sort of agricultural or idyllic kind of pastoral landscape, um, it was not like a one-minute process or one-year mm-hmm. process. It actually, you know, took t- took many, you know, sort of changes, and it, uh, it evolves like all city neighborhoods evolve over time. The kinds of industries that kind of swept in here by the 70s and 80s, the 1870s and 1880s, mm-hmm. <laughs> are kind of unique to the area, right? I mean, they're not quite what's happening over in Red Hook. It's all sorts of industries. Most of them, you know, as we will discover, are rather corrosive to the environment right. around them. You know, some of the earliest industry to arrive around the canal area, which which wasn't in Red Hook, was a cement factory. And uh, part of it was just that construction was happening in Brooklyn at such a high rate. It wasn't like Red Hook where you had a lot of, like, a storage and grain and more commodities. What you had here was, like, lumber yards and then coal yards and then you had these uh, factories producing cement, which really hadn't didn't exist as technology did not exist no, I before. Guess, yeah, I guess we take that for granted, right? No, yeah, we th- we could not make concrete properly until after the 1860s, after engineers in other countries like France and England made these great discoveries. Mm-hmm. And so, some of the early uh, one of the earliest industries that created concrete in America, in New York City, was developed along Ninth Street, right along the Gowanus Canal. 
so we have Gowan is partially responsible for all the horrible concrete buildings that would come along in the 20th century. That, that is <laughs> that is right that we can blame some of we can say that some of the earliest precast concrete structures were made in the Gowanus area starting mm. in like the late, you know, 1860s early 1870s. And uh, one building that's really like an example of that infrastructure would be the Kwanye Stone Company building. Uh, which still exists today, and it sits on the corner of Third Avenue and Third Street, which is a great address. Is it incorporated into the Whole Foods, or it's going to be incorporated? Right. Well, uh, it or? is within the lot of the Whole Foods, and the Whole Foods actually surrounds it on both sides that it's on. And it, it actually they had to get a special zoning variance to build up to five feet of the wall of the Kwanye Stone Company building, which which was finished in I believe 1872. And so then the funny part about that is so, so it's like they, it surrounds the Kwanye building, and then the whole foods which is itself surrounded by the guanas because it's abutting the fourth street basin right? that's right yeah so there were factories there because of the water access that the canal provided mm-hmm. and so now what you have is this post-industrial you know the the commercial building of whole foods and it is uh, is literally on the canal uh, on all these sides and <laughs> what would have been there before would have been the production factory for all of this you know concrete um and the, that house itself that's there was actually it was a model house or it was a model building to show what the concrete could do uh-huh. and so what what you had was this like you know we can create the equivalent of stone was there, the long island Poignier stone company mm-hmm. is what they call themselves and they could create facades especially that looked like real stone but a much cheaper value you know you needed a lot of room and you needed uh you know you need to be able to deliver those raw materials and so that's why it developed along the canal and even at the time that it was built in the 1870s early 1870s this this house uh, people thought it was especially beautiful and unusual for the area uh, and people's today i yeah. think walk up onto it and say what is this gorgeous house you know well it seems like there it should be in a row of like 20 other beautiful homes that were, you know, self-made millionaires lived there, but that's not the case. No, no, it's not the case at all, but it looks like that. Now, did I read in your book that there was a cream of tartar factory <laughs> somewhere? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so one of the, the the more, let's say, funny industries are, uh, that would pop up are these companies that created different chemicals that were, during the 19th century, sort of for the first time available to the general public, these, I guess what they're called, pure chemicals. And cream mm-hmm. of tartar is one of them it's this very versatile and uh, you know white powder essentially that can be used for cleaning for a variety of food production well i admit i had to look it up because right. i when, when i was going through the, your book it was like tartar sauce no but it was used for all sorts of purposes it was used for even medicine in the late 19th century so the, but that's chemicals so but there are right. several chemical plants along the way here right so you know yeah so one of the things i say in my book is that there's this list of of worst terribly polluting businesses uh, that took place that were sort of built along the canal. And in addition to the cream of tartar company, which was supposed to be one of the smelliest, you also had these companies that made dye for clothing. You had this lime kiln, which was essentially Ugh. a place where, I mean, uh, you know, they would sort of burn the lime chemical out of, I believe it's limestone, you know, granite, mm-hmm. and, and it would produce this awful stink and these awful smell. Uh, there was a uh, creation of starch, which was another chemical mm-hmm. used. As I say in my book, these agencies of nuisances, they would dump all of their excess waste products into the canal directly. So whatever the byproducts of cream of tartar were, you know, <laughs> that would that would get dumped into the canal. The dye, you know, extra dye would get thrown into mm-hmm. the canal, changing the water to blue and green. And you also had manufactured gas. Uh, now, manufactured gas was when they would take coal and they would use this process to heat it up and then they create this, uh, you know, the gas that they would pump mm-hmm. around to various buildings and houses to heat and to create yeah. light. And what that would do is that would produce this really disgusting, allogenous, you know, uh, <laughs> coal tar, this like mucousy substance that was black and gooey and and completely causes cancer. So, yeah, so what is the, what is it like to even, like, to be on the Gowanus at this time? So let's just put ourselves like at a hypothetical like in the 1890s for right. instance it's a busy waterway like right. there's hundreds of boats i mean they're not big boats they're there's there's smaller ones there's probably barges right that's right so a lot of canal barges uh, about 25 feet across and these would be barging in a certain d- amount of coal or chemical byproducts or the sand and the lime for the cement mm-hmm. and, uh, and it would be incredibly noisy because there would be all these uh, horns you know going off and mm-hmm. uh, the bells for bridges going up and there would also be tugboats uh pulling some of these barges that couldn't navigate the the smaller parts of the area. So what you had was a lot of bridges constantly opening and shutting. 
Well, but one of the the, the things about the bridges is that so in order for uh, people living in lower, you know, parts of Brooklyn or Kings County, they would come up Third Avenue and hope to cross the canal, you know, around Hamilton Avenue or let's say uh, Third Street. And there would often be so many openings and closing of the bridges that the traffic would get backed up for hours. And so you had people being angry and just yelling. And I mean, we think traffic is bad now. But yeah, if the the bridge is open for what, an an hour or whatever, as like regular boats go through whatever, but all we're not talking automobiles. No, no, we're talking horses and foot traffic. We're talking about people walking to work, you know. And so between people, horses, coal carriages, you had an incredible amount of just like yelling the smell of <laughs> of animals and then also the smell of the chemicals being produced in the background and then the dumping of the some of it into the into the water itself. So this is like chaos. It's total chaos. It's like it's like the River Hades. Right. <laughs> right. Well, the, it's like the River Styx. Or the River Styx. It's yes. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. And yeah. don't forget, you also had the raw sewage as well overflowing into the canal every time that there was heavy rain. So you had these chemical smells, this the gas smell, and then you also had the smell of excrement, you know, flowing into the canal. <laughs> so just as a thought experiment, as something that I'm sure all history nerds do, I went through a newspaper archive from Manhattan. I wanted to get the New York perspective on all of this and just literally just randomly chose some articles and so i want to delight you here with a with a couple here oh, I, um, this is amazing um uh from april 4th 1892 this is a letter to the editor uh of the evening world the headline is the deadly gowanus the gowanus <laughs> canal i think is nothing but a swill pond for the inhabitants i do not reside very far away from there and some evenings as i walk down that way i can see dead dogs and cats floating in the water <laughs> I think it is enough to give sickness to the public at large. As for the people who live around there, they are always sick. In 1916, so 100 years ago, also of the evening world, the headline, Flames on Guanus Canal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The waste oil, which is the top ingredient of the liquid in Brooklyn's Guanus Canal, caught fire today at Fifth Street. And before it was extinguished, two men had been hurt trying to unmoor the tangle of craft and three boats, which were partly burned. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I'm sure that that's... First of all, I'm sure you saw like 100 articles during your research, right? There's a lot of people that mentioned, you know, didn't the water itself catch on fire in the Guanas? And this is a prime example. Right around there is where one of the major gas works was. So they were probably dumping oil Oh, I'm all sure, the yeah. Time. They were probably associated with it, yes. right? And then finally, this one's just kind of funny from 1907. More of the snobbish attitude that New York newspapers sometimes had. War hits Guanas Canal with tie-up of shipping. And it's about how World War One. there was, at this time, I guess, there was a lot of war-related industry. There was all up and down. Right, all over, right. all over the Brooklyn waterfront. <laughs> but this one just starts, I'm not going to read the full sentence. Gowanus Canal, quote, somewhere in Brooklyn, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're just like, well, our readers... They don't even. They, they don't, don't even know where that this was. Actually, is. the original title for my book, "Somewhere in Brooklyn: The Gowanus Canal <laughs> in Story." Quotes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Brooklyn's unknown canal. Uh, Brooklyn's, Brooklyn's hidden story, <laughs> hidden canal. But there were attempts. Obviously, I mean, people were not like their noses worked, their eyes worked. They saw all these dead cats and dogs. Oh yeah. There had been some real efforts, some efforts to to kind of clean some of this up, right? Right. Well, private businesses had to dredge, you know, the areas that they sort of used around the canal. So that's how they cleaned it in some ways. But uh, one of the biggest sort of uh, efforts to clean up the canal, well, it started in the beginning of the 20th century. It was this flushing tunnel that they, oh, that yeah. they that this is the, the sort of 1911 flushing tunnel that opened to great fanfare in Brooklyn. And, and I write in my book, you know, it was like a day of celebration. What what they did was for, for about five years, they constructed this underground tunnel that went from DeGraw Street in the edge of Red Hook to the Gowanus itself. And the idea behind it is that it would pull in water using propellers to basically flush the contents of the canal out into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were there were two directions that the water could flow, and there was a sort of political discussion, you know, which way should it go? Should it go towards, uh, into the bay <laughs> by DeGraw Street, or should we push the water out towards the this lower part of the Gowanus Bay? And Depending on who it would inconvenience more, I Right, guess, exactly. Right? In a way that it, there was, if you were going to push it at farther south, it would inconvenience less of the people in Manhattan, and so that's probably oh, why sure. the direction yes. ran out. So, and the, does it, and the flushing tunnel is still there, right? The original flushing tunnel is there, and the mechanisms were recently replaced, and and they put in this newer sort of turbine system. And what what the flushing tunnel did, you know, it really did add some. 
some, say, oxygenation to the water that made it did seem a little cleaner. Mm-hmm. And so from 1911 to 1960, they had a sort of less of an oil sheen on top of the water. Oh, well, let me. Uh, I brought all these articles because oh. I knew you, you would know you would know so much. I wanted to surprise you with oh. information. So this is another article from 1912. Oh, perfect. The following year. Right. And this is it just caught my eye because the headline was the purified Gowanus Canal is now visited by regular fish, <laughs> which I, I can't imagine is true. But anyway, it's, quote, for the first time in the memory of the oldest inhabitant of the borough, uh, fish were caught in the Gowanus Canal Friday until within the last few weeks, not even eels would live in the <laughs> ill smelling slime. <laughs> I mean, I, I do love how all the old newspapers describe the horror of the, mm-hmm. of the Guanus Canal. So, but this didn't work very long. And so I assume the, the quote unquote regular fish didn't come through. Not that fish haven't tried to swim the Gowanus <laughs> no. Canal, as you've mentioned in your book, a couple notable uh, disturbing times. Right. Well, there are ig- there are sort of irregular fish that end up in the canal, and by that I mean dolphins. You know, mm-hmm. these poor dolphins are indeed the whales, like Sludgy the whale, the famous minky whale that swam into the canal in 2007. There's also a seal that was named Gowanda that flew that swam into the canal. Um, <laughs> this is in the 90s. Um, these these poor creatures swim into the canal, and more t- often than not, they end up dying as a result of it um you know it's interesting after they turn the flushing tunnel on to see like some life uh, you know emerging again it's not completely impossible Uh, it's it's just that it you know likely didn't last for that long because Mm -hmm. you know the level of pollution that continued into the canal was just too much it was too much and after they turned off the flushing tunnel from 1960 to 1999 there was no water movement at all when they fixed it in 99 and turned it on again they did start to notice some of these uh, little reappearances of tiny little crabs and minnows Mm. Unfortunately, however, uh, fish are not the only thing that are sort of floating in the Guanus Canal by this time because the water itself, putrid and horrible. The environment, the atmosphere, almost unlivable. And there literally are very few uh, places to live. There were shanties in the 19th century, of course. But for the most part, it was still very an industrial area. So as a result, just mix all this up. And of course, it's going to be an area that's going to attract crime. Right. It's going to be an ideal place to sort of dispose of things that you want disposed oh, of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say. I mean, aside from, you know, the, the dead cats and dogs, there's also people's horses, you know, dead horses Ugh. that they would throw into the canal because, you know, a lot of people use horses for work. And then once they became sick or, you know, were lame, you know, you, the easiest way to get rid of the body is just dump it into this anonymous spot. And, and sanitation was not what it is today. That's no, for sure. Not at all. I mean, I feel like the rat population was used as a, a way to get Ugh. rid of some of the, Ooh. you know, the, some of the organic material. Oh my God, imagine what were the rats like next to the guanus? Okay, I don't even want to imagine. Imagine the chemically enhanced Gowanus rats. Some of the <laughs> horses might have actually been rats that were just that people saw in the canoe, actually just oversized rats. And some way. of these were probably in the employ of the mafia, which right. uh, which was apparently uh, populated the side streets here of the Gowanus during the 1920s, especially during Prohibition. That's right. So, so I mean, it, there are early examples of, uh, let's say, crime happening around the Gowanus as it being a sort of unsavory area and descriptions and news stories starting the 1890s but in the early 20th century you had these Irish gangs that had long been around you know the basically the lower class the poorest elements of Brooklyn's sort of uh, you know like say the people living in in shanties you know there were there was plenty of crime surrounding that petty crime mm-hmm. and then you had this organized crime that that always seems to form around waterfronts and docks because you have oh, the yeah. possibility of dropping off goods that are illegal or just you know people uh, without paying taxes you know smuggling all kinds of things I mean it's yeah yeah it's certainly thriving around Red Hook by this time oh, absolutely. too, even down at Coney Island, certainly. And so what you had was during Prohibition, especially during the 1920s, you had this, well, there was this population that had moved in all around Brooklyn, this like, quote unquote, new Italian population. The criminal elements sort of grew up around these ethnic divides. So mm-hmm. in every population, there's a criminal element. And this these two ethnic groups started to fight each other. You had the Irish criminals, you had the Italian criminals, and this understanding that there were these early mafia battles that took place between these groups, and then people would get shot and then their bodies would be dumped into the canal and six weeks later they would find them still wearing the uniforms or the suits that they had been uh, wow you know they had been uh, they, uh, you know you would find these descriptions in the newspaper like man you know it's five foot ten you know wearing still wearing suit and with five dollars in his pocket washes up along the Gowana shore 
there were always bodies in the canal. People would get drunk and fall in. But then you started seeing, as the 1920s approached, more mangled bodies, bodies that had been clearly, mm. you know, uh, uh, asphyxiated, you know, neck wrapped in wire. So it became more of like a criminal, like a foul play suggested. And it seems amazing to me that so the Gowanus at this time was still considered a place where it's like, well, it'll just wash out to sea or whatever, right. or it'll disappear, <laughs> right? Well, I think because you couldn't see the bottom of the water. You know, sure. the idea was if you tied some a brick to something and it sank to the bottom, it would just get covered in, you know, all the pollution, the sludge, and it would just sort of disappear into the, into the ether, uh-huh. so to speak, the muck. But to get back to the unfortunate reality, if this puts us now in the 30s and 40s and 50s, we're talking about a sharp downturn that's mm-hmm. about to happen here in industry. I mean, it's happening all over the New York Harbor, especially, right? Red Hook is being really hit hard by this. By the 1960s, with you know containerization and mm-hmm. everything, all of these industries are closing. All those jobs are being lost, right? The same thing is happening in Manhattan and, and around Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a surprise to see that that's happening here up and down the Gowanus. And right. so these large buildings are being emptied out. The, the fact is barging was just not as you know useful to the 20th century, you know, uh, mm-hmm. combustion engine sort of uh, lifestyle that came with, you know, Robert Moses and the, the mm-hmm. construction of the BQE. You had all of a sudden this like lack of need of, of this entire industry, the shipping industry, the, you know, the coal gasification plants as electricity became more prevalent. And so all of these major industries that, you know, used to need waterfront access to operate, you know, even grocery delivery, all these, oh, sure. th- all of this stuff became kind of decimated by the presence of trucks and roads. And so you had these big power stations, these big factories that suddenly were, you know, derelict. And that meant that there was not enough like good foot traffic around and there was no. a whole lot of bad foot traffic around. Like, But there's, but there's, here's the, this is also very weird because, so this is happening around the 1950s, right? So 1950s, 1960s, right? Right. Just a short distance away, just a couple blocks over, this middle-class housing development called the Gowanus Houses and was built in 1949. The interesting thing, this is one of an example of one of these projects that was built specifically for returning war veterans. But I mean, what's surprising is it is so close to the Gowanus. So this can't have been like the most immediately pleasant experience for residential life no. right, by, that, by then, right? So I mean, it's funny now because now everyone wants to uh, right. move to the Gowanus. So it's a hot, thriving residential neighborhood. But it's just funny to think of everything that we've just discussed so far. It doesn't, it's just not ready for prime time here. No. <laughs> I mean, what, what's incredible is the people lived near the canal often or near the Gowanus Creek before, you know, it was turned into this industrial thoroughfare. And it was considered not favorable because of all the flooding that used to happen mm-hmm. here. And then, you know, in the post sort of industrial period, it was still stank and it was still considered unpleasant. But there was not as much work around it. You know, there, it didn't provide these employment opportunities. Meanwhile... Though there's another sort of movement, a residential movement going on at this time. Um, Tom and I talked about this in our Park Slope podcast, but then this is also happening with Brooklyn Heights and these neighborhoods, which will be given new names in the 1960s, 1970s. This is the so-called brownstone renovation or brownstone movement, right? Where it's people of means who can go in and buy these older buildings that are dirt cheap Mm -hmm. pretty much and redo them and all of a sudden they have this really spacious house that was a mansion 80 years beforehand right well all of you know all of brooklyn went through this economic downturn you know like so many cities did during you know the post-industrial era and as uh you know as you're as you're pointing out you know a lot of these buildings they were derelict they had been they had been sort of left behind by people escaping the city you know as as jobs you know left the city so Mm -hmm. did a lot of people especially during the sort of the white flight of the 1950s and 60s. And so these abandoned buildings that were left behind by, you know, most of these middle class, upper middle class people, only the most sort of creative or ambitious or the the, the sort of anti-suburbanites, they would come in and see cachet where others just did not see it yet. And, the, sure. you know, they were regarded as weirdos by, you know, the majority of the population. But what they actually had this idea of was, was the charm of the 19th century architecture and construction and how, how solid it was or how beautiful 
beautiful it was to their eyes. There was a neighborhood that was known as North Gowanus. Now we call oh, yeah. it Borum Hill. You know, that was renamed uh, in the 1960s by someone, you know, where there, were, there had never been a hill there, actually. There mm-hmm. was no hill called Borum Hill, but completely constructed identity of a neighborhood that had the word Gowanus in it, but that was associated with crime and poverty and, you know, Oh, sure. Industry. You couldn't use those old names. No, right. you couldn't use it. You had to completely re- reinvent, you know, the, the, the name of the neighborhood, so to speak. In the early 70s, you could buy a row house near the Gowanus Canal for no money if you could get a loan. Um, but it would not, it would still be an area that your tire caps would get stolen, you know, if you parked your car outside or the windows would regularly be smashed. And so there was the crime sort of kept away even the most pioneering brownstoners because there was it was just the most it was the seediest of the area. Very, It seemed remote. Right. And it seemed like when it would get, quote unquote, discovered by Manhattanites, it would be the artist scene, the arts, right? Because in a similar way that in like Soho yes. it would be because they would it would be the loft spaces, be the openness of the spaces, not exactly what the buildings looked like necessarily. It wasn't so much the look, it was the idiosyncratic nature of, of all of the buildings and together they provided these unique spaces that, you know, while not necessarily much to look at, you could work on any variety of creative uh, uh, you know, artistic uses that the sort of more grid-like, you know, row houses mm-hmm. and areas just didn't have. It, you know, it was not far necessarily from Brooklyn Heights, but it was also a world away. Um, you oh, know, definitely. Pe- and people would not leave, you know, there was a subway at that point, but the Gowanus was not super accessible by subway. I mean, it's only a few blocks away mm-hmm. in, your, in our minds, but it, walking down that hill was really going from a, a you know, a, a relatively safe area to a really you know, seedy area. That's something that, you know, that can be seen and reflected over and over again in in the history of the neighborhood. But it was not always the case that Mm -hmm. people saw loft buildings and old factories as beautiful. They saw them as, you know, derelict and, you know, uh, getting in the way of better development and better housing situations. Yeah, we could build like a concrete skyscraper there, but instead, you know, no one wants to be in this neighborhood because of the crime. Right. So that's how the Gowanus houses arrived Mm -hmm. in a way. It was because they said, well, we have these lots. Why not build these tall yeah. buildings it was part of development I mean one of the more interesting uh, stories of that of this particular period in your book is this weird thing that happened in 1981 right the monumental oh. show oh right so it's like for a hot brief moment the Soho art scene like decided to like dabble for just a little bit, right, in Gowanus and had a, an epic, well-written-about uh, art show. I think it was during the summer, right? Right. These these people had access to these crusty, disgusting old buildings that were perfect for creating weird <laughs> weird things. And so the, in the case of the Monumental Show, a collective of, of different New York City-based artists of the day got together and they decided, they called it the Monumental Show mm-hmm. because they wanted to create works of art that were outsized, that were huge and, you know, to the scale of which were enormous and that could only take place place in these larger loft spaces that they were not able to rent in Soho anymore. And so they created this uh, also this thing called the Gowanus Art Yard. This just bizarre outsider, weird, uh, you know, out, you know, not the normal art scene scene. And so during the early 80s, that unrecognized sort of patch of of urban landscape became this destination because it was just out there and cruel and weird. I mean, I'm just picturing like, you know, like Faye Dunaway, like picturing like celebrities (laughs) taking the subway out there in like their Soho, like fabulous nightlife finery and like having to, you know, to like sift through the streets here and and the repellent odors from from the Gowanus, which was on the Gowanus. It's it's not a block away. It was actually on it, It right? It had been previously full of rusty old cars and trash mm-hmm. and you know some of it was cleaned up by the artists in order to make way for it but that was sort of maybe the beginning of this like idea of industrial chic in the, oh, in the sure. sort of more like 21st century way that we fetishize well I was going to say so then like flash forward like just like fade out and fade in to, to, to today mm-hmm. pretty much right or at least say the five years ago right? right in the 2000s where this was not remote anymore that all the neighborhoods around it had been fairly gentrified mm-hmm. right so So, you know, people were always hungry for new spaces. And so by the 2000s, Gowanus was looking pretty good, not only for, you know, not only for the artist types. We're talking about real estate development, for instance. 
Well, what you what you did have was this idea of the authenticity of uh, original use mm-hmm. in New York. Like the, the you know we had this this former industrial character that we lost, and and instead of knocking down these unusual architecturally unique spaces, we could put them towards something called adaptive reuse. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a lovely buzzword that people love to employ. You have the sense of the unique character being a draw for people mm-hmm. instead of a, a thing that's a deterrent. Mm-hmm. You instead of instead of saying oh, here's a, yet another row house. Here's, here's yet another brownstone. Here's a, rear, a weird building that used to be a you know horse stable or it used to be a can factory or a bo- packing box factory that we could put people in because that mm-hmm. creates this authentic New York experience uh, almost as a package. <laughs> Except that the interesting thing is that the Gowanus itself is not quite ready for them, right? Right. That there's already developments right now. There's already these condos going up. You, have, you explain to me how these are going up. When the Gowanus is officially a super fund site, right. right? Which is a government program to clean up toxic sites in the United States, right? Right. So what the Superfund does is it it examines some of the worst toxically polluted sites across the country and it and it determines how they should be cleaned up and the best way to do it. And the community was sort of torn that some in the community wanted wanted it, but others saw it as, I mean, like a branding. Like, th- if you say this is the Superfund, then no one's going to want to live near it, you right. know, for obvious reasons. We, we had this one group, the Toll Brothers, who was this, who was this big mm-hmm. developer. The Toll Brothers identified this site, and what they did is they sort of pushed through the community this idea that if they develop there, then if they build, if we build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. And we want to rezone this area from industrial to, you know, a more mixed residential commercial use um, and you had Michael Bloomberg and you also had current Mayor Bill de Blasio saying if we super fund this area if we say this canal is a super fund mm-hmm. site then it's going to stigmatize the region and yeah. give it and give it this like toxically polluted well, reputation the, yeah. that no one is going to want to live near and so the Toll Brothers being the people that had identified this site that they wanted to build on and came up with this plan for a 700 unit building they said we're going to push through, you know, and try and get us rezone. But if you superfund it, then we will abandon the site. We mm-hmm. are not going to build here if the site gets superfunded. So you had, and sure enough, and yeah. sure enough, the superfund designation came through in uh, 2009, I believe, mm-hmm. actually it was. And uh, and after uh, and you know, after several years of of the community battle, it was like this big victory for the people who wanted to preserve buildings, who wanted to stop like the sort of residential overbearing developments from moving in. They thought actually, some of these community activists thought if it is super funded then mm-hmm. it will keep away the the what they saw as the worst of the developers <laughs> because it's funny because now in 2016 uh, you finally have these gorgeous condos mm-hmm. going up right up against the water which is really extraordinary to me and and nothing really kept anyone back in particular with this whole superfund designation although i mean it just adds another twist to the tale and so it's interesting to see how it's even going to develop going forward right because it will keep away Certain. I mean, I, there, I don't think there's going to be a Starbucks that opens around there anytime soon. Although maybe the Whole Foods has one. I don't know. Well, but. right. So the Whole Foods. So it's it, well, it, it's interesting. In the Whole Foods site, which was like that former concrete factory mm-hmm. that we talked about before, in 2006 they bought the site and uh, they had to clean up parts of it. And they had this big plan for a big supermarket. And then and then as the community fought that and and sort of said, well, this is a really polluted site. The supermarket size got smaller and smaller, and <laughs> they really weren't able to actually begin construction until after. It was designated a super fun site. Wow! I mean, so and it's funny. It's it will we'll we'll look back on this as a pioneer kind right. of for that neighborhood, right? Absolutely. I mean, having a Whole Foods in a neighborhood really designates it as like the next hot sort of gentrified neighborhood to be mm-hmm. in. The reason why the Whole Foods can exist there is because of the extra space that that was there, and so and, and also the, you know bringing in this Whole Foods brought a lot of jobs to the community, and so mm-hmm. you had these two different factions of people that you know some of them see this the thing like a Whole Foods rising as they this is the the, the sign of the Renaissance of a community that really produces a great tax base. Uh-huh. And on the other hand, you had people who said, but this is the thing that destroys the character of this sort of artist, kind of gritty, authentic New York City experience that, you know, that so, so many people love to to imagine all while buying, you know, $9 sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even artists, you know, need to buy their artesian jellies, right? Right, that's right. I mean, <laughs> sriracha, you know, how do you make a sriracha cocktail if you can't go in and get Oh, I mean, your, absolutely not. There's yeah. nowhere. 
are. Now, I want to end our discussion here with sort of a reflection, if you will, and to the current Gowanus. So this past weekend, I took your book and I had marked like all these different places that you, were, you had put addresses. And I was like, okay, so I've lived next to the Gowanus, you know, fairly near to it for, you know, a few years now. And I don't think I've ever properly gone up and like purely walked it, but you can't really walk in a straight line, obviously, but you can go down the side streets and sort of like look around where, where you're at. And I mean, a couple of things that sort of struck me. So it, it's, it begins, if you will, like the most northern part of it is on Butler Street between Bond and Nevins, correct? And that is some sort of a pro- waste processing station. Is that what that is at the very start with the, where it gets the most foamy, the oh, water? No, that's actually the Flushing Tunnel. Oh, that is where the Flushing Tunnel that's is. That's the Flushing Tunnel is. Oh, wow. So where the water gets foamy is from the, <laughs> it's when they restarted the Flushing Tunnel. They, uh, you know, they began moving the water through very quickly with these turbines. And what's actually doing is frothing up the pollution that's in the water <laughs> oh, already. No. So that foamy, sudsy stuff is kind of like, you wash your hands in a sink, the soap that you've the been film. using. The film of that, that gets kicked up and, 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 and basically makes the water look frothy on top because it's pollution. Oh my God. Well, that stuff like a little bit of that like flew up in my face. So <laughs> I was like, can't stand here. And so that's like at the very the northern edge. And it's, it is really bizarre. I'm sure that you've explored it in further detail than I did because there's some really scary uh, streets with like, you know, abandoned tires and weird doll parts, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, <laughs> which I don't know how they get there. So that, but, but it's interesting because the, you'll, that'll exist. And then, yeah, you'll turn a corner and there'll be like a, a shuffleboard court and, of course, you know, a, a glamorous ice cream shop that's right around the corner. You know, it's it's so it's interesting. Like after uh, the, the Toll Brothers left their their site that they abandoned after the Superfund mm-hmm. designation happened, just a, within a few years, a completely different company decided to come in and take over the site that had been abandoned by a previous developer and mm-hmm. said, you know what, this is still good. We don't care about Superfund. We're going to build anyway. And they started to build these massive condo. And that was because of places that are like what you described this juxtaposed we're already there that were, yeah. that were already mm-hmm. there that had formed because well no one is developing these sites for residential purposes so mm-hmm. let's put in some funky business like you know <laughs> uh i mean there's a there's a rock climbing facility and like what oh, had, yeah. that was in a former daily news print shop and uh you know there was a garage that became an aikido studio and it's they they create this awesome kind of like uh you know uh, here's a unique bakery near a super fun site you know mm-hmm. here's, or here's, <laughs> people want to be near that for some reason there's something about the the unique character of that which which actually is, is of interest to to people oh, yeah. that want to live near and so what you end up with is this is this like constant state of renewal and transition and change and the the shuffleboard court goes from being like this this sort of funny idea that might happen to an actual like pull yeah, this is uh-huh. don't, don't you want to live near the shuffleboard court there's this is the only one in new york city so yeah, now it is a destination. Again, it's like this strange self-fulfilling prophecy that like people wanted Gowanus to happen in a certain way, and it seems to be happening that way. So one final question. Have you ever been in the Gowanus? I've not, never taken a swim in the yeah, Gowanus, yeah. actually. I have been on the canal in boats multiple times, mm-hmm. um, in canoes, and in one time this sort of, I guess you would call it a fiberglass dinghy. I don't even know how <laughs> quite to describe this small boat that I was in once. Um, and so I've been up quite within inches of the water. Um, and I have to say it is a frightening experience because what you see is all this stuff floating around in there that you really don't want to know what it is or rubber things that might be, sure. you know, prophylactic or it might just be, you know, plastic bag. Um, and uh, nothing living. I mean, there are there are actually biologists that have been doing some studies and found that there are new kinds of bacteria that are forming in the canal that, do, that survive on methane, that barely even need any oxygen. So new forms of life are, are actually, being created here because they want to get in on the hottest neighborhood that's right obviously. Even, even the bacteria realize that there is <laughs> yes. there is a, a real estate you know niche to be filled so the so the great part about this podcast and the great part about your book it's not only a good book but it's a good book that is immediately relevant because <laughs> i put it down picked up the newspaper and there's like i mean there's a story about the guanas every other day you know so i mean it's it'll be exciting to see what happens in the guanas like like people listening to the show for instance five years from now I'll be like, oh, remember how how quaint they're talking about the Gowanus? <laughs> well, before they built the Walmart out there, right. you know, or whatever, would hope that won't happen. But 
But everyone needs to check out Joe's book. It is it's a super fun book. That's <laughs> <laughs> very kind. Um, and and it goes through the entire. I mean, like you go from the very very beginning. Like it starts in the 1630s. And so, uh, Joseph, thank you for sh- oh. for showing up. I'm really really uh, happy to have you on the show. It's been great. A great honor to be on the Bowery Boys. I've been listening to you guys for years. Aww. And you know, it's 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 it, my friends are just completely <laughs> jealous and also in awe of the fact that I got to be able to compare history notes with you know one of the people really you know who sees what's so wonderful about unique New York. I mean, do you realize that from now on you're going to be the expert? <laughs> <laughs> I got very lucky when I got obsessed with Gowanus. It was a sort of weird place to to be in, and I saw you know I thought maybe some of this is going to change, or maybe Third Avenue is going to go from being empty storefronts to mm-hmm. to sort of hip businesses. But I never would have guessed that this this the sheer amount of <laughs> of change that's gone on from now. Now there's a morbid anatomy museum on the corner. Oh, I know. You know. Oh, yeah. We love that place. That's really cool. Check us out on the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'm going to have a lot of pictures. Check us also out on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Oh, I was Instagramming Gowanus like nonstop last week. Gowanus gets clicks. I'm telling you, you put a you put a picture of a dead rat in the Gowanus Canal Gross. on people. People will click on that and like it. <laughs> oh yeah, because it's Gowanus. It's hip. No, I'm about to say something that I have never said before on a Bowery Boys podcast. I will not be here for our next episode. And so Tom is manning the show for episode 202, and he has something amazing cooked up, and I cannot wait to hear it, and you guys will love it. So on that note, thank you, Joe. Thanks for showing up. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wicknuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last